Well, I've had you open up to Revelation chapter 5. And I want you to look at verses 1 and 2 again with me. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. If you remember from last week, uh, there, there are no personal pronouns used for God. He's this, he's this sort of transcendent being enthroned. And as John sees this one, he sees in the right hand of him who is seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Now, I try to do my best for the sake of our children, because we're going to get into seals and then trumpets and bowls. Uh, I thought about using Play-Doh, but that would have made a mess. Um, but this is, this is not the exact replica. It would have been a lot more majestic. This is Steve looking for an illustration at about 830. Okay, so seven seals, not sticky notes. They, they would be probably wax seals. And there would be seven of them. And on the scroll, it was written within and without, meaning it's full, it's complete. Man cannot add to the judgments that are contained in the scroll. God has fully laid out how the eschaton, the end times, are going to unfold. Okay, and, and it's interesting that you don't get to the contents of the scroll within or without until the lamb breaks all seven seals. The first four seals will be broken, at least in our understanding of the text this morning. And each one is represented by a horse and a rider. So I hope that makes sense. Okay, look at verse 2. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its what? Its seals. So before you can get to the contents, before you can have the revelation, someone has to be worthy to start breaking these seals off. Now, there is one worthy. Look at verse 2. I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy? And we asked this question last week. Are you worthy to break the seals? Is your favorite preacher or teacher worthy? Your favorite commentary writer, your favorite author, your favorite missionary evangelist? No. Humanity in full is unworthy. The angels, the amazing creatures that stand by God's throne are not worthy. But look at verse 4 of chapter 5. Because John starts weeping. He has this emotional reaction of the inability of anyone to get into the contents of the scroll. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. Those are two classic messianic terms for the Messiah. This one has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw and remember the descriptions. This lion of the tribe of Judah and this branch, this root of David, this messianic conquering king. And he turns and rather than seeing a conquering warrior king, what does he see? He sees a lamb. I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. The symbol of Jesus as the slain lamb is crucial for understanding this book. You can't understand this book. You can't get to the contents of the scroll until you see and behold the slain lamb. What John is saying is that the Old Testament promise of God's future victorious kingdom was inaugurated when Jesus Christ, the Messiah, was crucified. He overcame his enemies by dying and rising again. Remember when John sees, he sees a lamb as though 
it had been slain, but Jesus was slain. That Passover lamb was killed. So what does it mean by as though he were slain? He's no longer dead. I mean, if you go back to Revelation 1, it's Jesus who's saying that he holds the keys to Hades and death. He is the one that was dead, but is now what? Alive forevermore. So there's this lamb as though he is slain standing, but he's alive. The events that will end world history and usher in the last days are ready to begin at the time John receives this revelation and the slain lamb begins to open the scroll, which shows that he has divine authority to inaugurate these events as they unfold farther. That brings us to the next section. This is a huge section in the book of Revelation, and I have a second illustration to sort of explain uh, what we're about to look at. It's kind of creepy looking. My children think so. This is a matryoshka doll. This is a nesting doll. And we're about to get to a section where you're going to have seven seals, right? In our case, seven sticky notes that need to be pulled off. And then you're going to have seven trumpets, seven angels with trumpets. And then you're going to have seven bowls. And you're going to have this, you have this, these sets of seven. And then what's interesting is on the last seventh, like the seventh seal, come out of that seventh, seven trumpets. On the seventh trumpet, out of it come seven seals. So I was hoping this would prove to be a good illustration. This is the one we have. It was given to us uh, before any of our children were born. And inside, amazingly enough, are six, not seven, six little representations for children. And we have six children. And there's three boys and three girls. Not a sign, right? I mean, and, and we did not add or take away from the ones that were in here. It just happened to be that it really matched up incredibly perfect for us. This one is going to give you more of an understanding of what's happening here. So you have the seven seals. And then on the seventh seal, outcome, the seven. What's next? Trumpets. And then out from the seventh trumpet comes... It's got to be like four font to you in the back row, right? Comes the seven bowls. So, but they're all, they're all one. And they build upon each other so that what is happening here is probably not a linear timeline where you have seal, 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 trumpet, 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 bowl, 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 linear, all unhappening. You probably have more of a cycle where all three sevens are communicating the same thing from different perspectives. And we're going to look at that. And, and, and there's a rhythm of the seals and the trumpets and the bowls, and it's a four-three rhythm, if you would. And it's four judgments upon the earth and three glimpses into heaven, whether it's cosmic disturbances or you're seeing these these martyred saints underneath and crying out, you're going to get a glimpse into heaven. And then when you get to the trumpets, it's four and three. And when you get to the bowls, it's four and three. And each one ends with a similar ending. Okay, so hopefully that'll help you understand where we're going. These won't distract you, will they? There. Okay. Now, these visions of judgment, the seven, the seven, the seven, 
account for nearly half of the book of Revelation, so they must be taken seriously. So the next question is, how do you interpret them? And when I told a couple of my children this morning, we're going to be talking about the four horsemen of the apocalypse. It's amazing how many people know about the four horsemen. And they're like, oh, I don't know that I want to learn about them. Right? There's this kind of, I'm not so sure I want to see that, that rider on a pale horse with a sword. Okay? So it's very important we understand what God intends to communicate through John and what the original readers would have understood when they heard this. Remember, seven seals out of the seventh seal, seven trumpets out of the seventh trumpet, seven bowls, all woven together. Cared, a well, well-known statement, writes this. The unity of John's book is neither chronological nor arithmetical, but artistic. Like that of a musical theme with variations, each variation adding something new to the significance of the whole composition. This is the only view which does adequate justice to the double fact that each new series of visions both recapitulates and develops the themes already stated in what has gone before. Bruce Metzger says this, the descriptions are not descriptions of real occurrences, but of symbols of the real occurrences. Does that make sense? So, so what we, we do not need to fear, the picture we're not trying to give to our children, is that all of a sudden, out of nowhere, riding down Colfax Avenue is going to be a black horse and a rider with a scale of balances. And if you see him, run. See, that, that's very limited. That's, that's taking symbolism much too far. So what we have to ask is, what did John readers understand when these images came to him? Michael Gorman writes, We might well wonder what the function of such vivid realism is. Taken individually or together, these visions of judgment create a literary, rhetorical, and emotional experience of shock and awe. Their primary purpose, however, is not to instill fear, but to provide a wake-up call for those who are sleeping. So let's consider from the text right now, the Lamb opens the first four seals. Turn with me to Revelation 6. The infamous four horsemen of the apocalypse really bring forth Old Testament echoes. Let me read to you one passage out of Zechariah as you turn to Revelation 6. Zechariah says, I saw in the night and behold a man riding on a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in the glen and behind him were red, sorrel, which is a chestnut brown, and white horses. Then I said, what are these, my Lord? The angel who talked with me said to me, I will show you what they are. So the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered, these are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. Now, what should strike you, even from Zechariah's vision, is the angelic servants, the horses, and that God has initiated this. God is in direct control of the horses in Zechariah and of the horses in Revelation 6. The four riders represent something we are very well accustomed to. Conquest, war, famine, and death. Look at chapter 6, verse 1. John says this, Now I watched when the Lamb 
opened one of the seven seals. And I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, come. Okay, stop right there. Here's what's going to, here's what's going to happen with every horse and rider is if you go back into Revelation 4, there are four creatures. Do you remember those creatures? And it, it's not the one creature is a lion. It always says it's like this. John's trying to explain it in terms that are familiar to him. One is like a lion, but it's got wings and eyes all around. And then there's one like an ox, and there's one that has a human face, and there's one that's like an eagle in flight. They're not those things, but that's what they appear to be like. And each one of the four living creatures has authority by God, by the one on the throne, to invite a rider and its horse. So look at verse 2. This is after the first living beast says, Come, and I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. So the creature, with the appearance of a lion, with eyes fully in front and behind, with six wings, who never ceases to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come, says, Come. And he invites the white horse and its rider. Divine authorization of this activity. So, what does this horse and its rider represent? Some have tried to make an argument that it's Christ on the white horse because that, that symbolism is used later. Some have tried to argue that it's the Antichrist. But neither of those descriptions is supported or warranted from the text because you have a living creature with divine authorization saying, come, and they all represent something. And the closest description resembles the Parthians. If you would just look up and do a Google image on Parthians, you'll see uh, drawings of men on horseback, some with golden crowns or golden caps, and they're shooting a bow from a galloping horse. It is the only enemy the Romans feared. Out of all the enemies that were surrounding them, they feared the Parthians most. They were a famous cavalry, warlike federation of tribes, and they perfected the shooting of arrows from a charging horse. The picture here is one of independence, because they never submitted to the emperor and they never submitted to the governing power of Rome, and one of conquering. Here's the application. And if you, if you just start looking at the horses and the riders together and what God is trying to communicate is this. Conquest and the resulting oppression are allowed by God. Now, some of you need to hear this. Conquest and the resulting oppression are sovereignly allowed by God. But it's not as much as God is pouring this out on the world as much as it is, he's simply letting humanity's depravity to unfold. Conquest and oppression. Under the rule and reign of men, there will be those who desire to conquer others and reign for themselves. But with the gospel of grace, there will be the absence of conquest, the conquest of evil, 
and its accompanying oppression. So how do we explain this? How do you explain this white horse and its rider? To do so, I wanted to address our children to try to bring it down into simple terms. So children, we just looked at a picture of a white horse and a rider who has a bow and arrow and he has a crown and he's conquering. He's moving in swiftly and conquering. He's an independent nation. He will not be ruled by another governing authority and he swoops in. What this means is that even though there are evil leaders who seem to have victory now, your parents could probably put names on that, even though there are evil leaders who seem to have victory now, who resist God now, who desire to conquer and control others, who oppress others, and right now the wicked seem to win, God will overthrow them permanently. Evil will not win in the end. And he does so through a lamb, a lamb that was slain. Let's look at the second horseman, chapter 6, verse 3. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. Bright red horse, savage and bloody because he is taking life. The second creature, like an ox, full of eyes in front and behind with six wings, who day and night never ceases to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come, has been given permission by the one on the throne to invite a blood-red horse. You know, each horse, as we get into this, represents an aspect of depravity. It is human's fallen nature to conquest and oppress other people. Here it is human nature to slay other people, including, and our nation is not foreign to this, civil war. This is war and bloodshed. You can just go online and you can look at uh, armed conflicts happening right now, and it gives you a map and a huge list of what is happening right now. And where you see those little dots all over this world map, that's where the red horse is galloping. In our history, that is where the red horse has galloped. And as we proceed further to the end, closer to the end, this will become more and more evident. The world's war lust, we, and we, we need to embrace this, the world's war lust is permitted by God, but again, it's not so much he's pouring this out on the world so much as he is simply letting man's depravity to unfold. You know, you and me left to ourselves without the Holy Spirit of God will launch off into conquering and oppression and the killing of one another. Look at Adam and Eve's first child. He took his brother's life. That's what sin does. Sin kills. Under the rule and reign of men, there will be war. But with God through the gospel, there will be a final war to end wars. And it will introduce peace and harmony. So how do we explain that to our children? So children, what this means is even though war is allowed right now, even though people kill one another right now, God will bring this to an end. Because the Lamb of God is also the Prince of Peace. 
And so you have children right now in a, in a Syrian civil war, fearing for their lives. And we're going to look at the next horse. They're actually living in the midst of what the next horse represents. And what that means is that will come to an end. And God will bring it to its right and just end. And here's what Jesus says to us. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. So who is sovereign? Who, who is permitting these things to happen? Who's permitting conquest? Who is permitting, by, by letting our exceeding sinfulness to sort of unravel, who is permitting then war? Even civil war. God is sovereign. The creatures give authority for this, these horses to come. And then it simply unravels. And what this should, even, even we're only two horses in, what this should do is create within our hearts a desire and a longing and a hope for the return of the King. The Prince of Peace. The slain Lamb. Look at the third horse. And these start to build on one another. Conquest and oppression lead to war and bloodshed. Bloodshed leads to famine. Look at verse 5. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a black horse. And its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not harm the oil and wine. There were, by the end of Revelation 5, there were two sort of pictures or identities between the living creatures. It's the one on the throne and it's the lamb. This is going to be difficult for us to grasp. In sort of a in a soft, sort of comfortable perspective of deity. But it is God who gives the creatures permission to invite this black horse and its rider. And it's God who puts borders around famine. He allows it, but he's controlling it. So this third creature that invites the horse has the face of a man full of eyes in front and behind with six wings and who day and night never ceases to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And when he says come, here comes a black horse and its rider. There is a statement in verse 5 that is not used for the first two seals. John says this, and I looked. He doesn't say that for the first two. So this is a, this is a bit of a change and it seems to signify that he's looking at the effect of the first two seals. So you have conquest and bloodshed. And now he looks and he sees famine. Black most likely refers to the color of Jewish garment for deep sorrow and weeping and mourning. And all the details refer to famine. Look at where it says a quart of wheat for a denarius. A denarius was an average day's wage for a household. And wheat was more nutritious than barley, so you could buy more barley, if you look at that, and three quarts of barley for a denarius. So if you're living by yourself and you want to eat nutritiously, you're going to use your entire day's wage to buy wheat. But there's nothing left. 
But if you have a family, you're going to need to use your entire day's wage to buy three quarts of barley. Here's the picture that's being given. A person's entire earnings for the day was barely enough to feed the family. Do we understand that that's what conquest and war introduced to civilizations? Famine. This is when, when he says, do not harm the oil and wine. That is perhaps a historical reference to Domitian's decree that half the vineyards be cut down in order to increase grain production. But the people that lived there that knew how long it took to mature the vineyard, uh, they, they rose up in rejection of that decree. And Domitian actually then withdrew. He rescinded his decree. Is that also a picture of God's mercy in the midst of famine? Don't touch these things. Or worse, could it indicate that the wealthy will still have their luxuries while the lower class scavenges for basic food? They still have their wine. They still have their luxuries. All the while, common people are picking through the garbage to look for food. You know, after a conquering army would come down and invade, and we're going to see this in Habakkuk towards the end here. After an army would come down and invade and they would eat of the fields and of the livestock and of the grain that was stockpiled, they would leave and the people would suffer in famine and under rations. And the image here of eating bread on the basis of weight, he's got this rider on this black horse has these scales and the image of just getting basic nutrition by weight shows you the horrific scarcity of food. And here's what's difficult. It's allowed, it's permitted by God, and I think to graciously show us the depravity of humanity after the fall. Under the rule and reign of men who conquest and shed blood, there will also be famine. And that's why we desire and look for another king who will reign in peace and even Jesus says, I have come that you may have life and you may have it what? Abundantly. There's no, there's no scale of weight uh, in, in the joys of the Lord. So what does this mean as we explain it to our children? What this means is that even though war is permitted and it introduces suffering and famine and some of the pictures that we see even on Fox News and CNN and Sky News are horrific and they should bother us that the Lamb of God will make war to end war, to end conquest, to end bloodshed, and to end famine. And you know that's what the final chapters of Revelation point us to, where it says there'll be no more crying. He will wipe every tear from their eye. And you start to look through these trees that have 12 different fruits. There's an abundance of what is coming. That's where our hope is. The dark spots of humanity are intended to turn us to Christ, the true King. Final horse, look at verse 7. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse. By the way, that word, the wording there is probably most likely yellowish green. And its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they personifying death in the grave. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence 
and by wild beasts of the earth. So the final creature, what was its appearance like? Do you remember? Like an eagle in flight. And that living creature who doesn't cease to sing, holy, holy, holy to the Lord. He has been given divine permission to invite this pale horse and its rider. And its rider's name was Death and Hades. What what is the picture there? What is the picture there? Death rides on the horse. And Hades, the grave, follows. It's almost as though the grave and this, this picture of the decomposition of dead bodies, these corpses are being gathered up by Hades as they follow this pale horse and its rider. Isn't that horrific? I mean, to me, that's worse than just me all of a sudden, like, walking in front of a pale horse and its rider. The fact that this has been galloping through humanity ever since we chose to sin. So there is a sense where towards the end it's going to escalate. But every time you drive by a cemetery, any time you see on on a news headline where this civilization has been bombed or these people are being purposely starved to death. Like before Sudan split into two, the northern Sudanese would bomb the cattle of the southern Sudanese to purposely starve them out. That's where this pale horse is galloping. And when we went up to visit there and to teach, you could see large piles of these white sun-bleached cow bones. And the northern Sudanese said, we're going to starve them out. If we can't bomb them because they're too dispersed, we're going to find their herds of cattle and we're going to starve them. Folks, that's the pale horse and its rider. And it says, and they, perhaps all four riders, but most likely just death and Hades, and they were given authority over a fourth of the earth. See, I'm not sure we've seen that yet. Let me explain to you what that would be. Today, that would be 1.7 billion people dead and decomposing. And when that happens, you will see the pale horse and its rider, who is death and Hades. Here's what they've been given authority over a fourth of the earth to do. To kill with the sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. Now, here's the application. Death and Hades are allowed by God. But they are still his servants. They are under divine invite, if you would. Right. The creatures have to say, come. But again, it's not so much that God is pouring this out as much as it is letting us see the curse of our own sinful condition and to reap its due consequences. I mean, you think about this rider and the grave following this rider, and then you put into context Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is what? Okay, do you believe that in light of this picture? Matter of fact, Ezekiel 18.20 says, the soul who sins will die. Well, who has not sinned? The lamb that was slain. So what is your only hope? The lamb that was slain. What does that mean if we explain it to our children? What this means is that death And the grave will overtake all of humanity because all have sinned. 
And those who reject God will not escape that. But Christ, the Lamb who was slain, died so that you might have eternal life. John 5.24 says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. And I love how the latter part of Revelation explains it, that those, those who have been purchased, those who have been ransomed by the slain lamb, they'll not experience the second death. But for all of those who have resisted the Messiah, the galloping black horse will overtake you. You see, these, these images, these symbols are supposed to arrest us. They're supposed to wake Christians up. There's supposed to be a sobering effect that comes over our soul. Under the rule and reign of men, there is conquest and death and bloodshed and famine and judgment. But with God through the gospel of grace, there is forgiveness and life. So how do we respond? War, bloodshed, famine and death gallops, continues to gallop across human history and it will gallop and actually escalate here towards the end. How do we respond to this? I just have three points. Probably do one point per minute here. First of all, and I know I'm not talking to the majority of you, but some of you doubt whether there is a God or not. And your doubt stems from all the seeming unstoppable evil in the world. And you reason, how can there be a God who is good when he lets all this happen? And that's a, that's a legitimate question when asked reverently. Because our reasoning is, we believe these attributes, we believe these characteristics about God, and if that were true of him, then the earth would look much different. Connected to this attitude is that we just can't worship a God we believe is unjust, unfair, and unsympathetic. And this affects people not only here, probably at Highlands, but in churches, evangelical churches scattered all throughout the United States this morning where people have shown up and they have drawn near to God with their lips, but their heart is far from him because they believe in their heart tucked down deep inside that he is more cruel than fair. And worship doesn't come out of that kind of accusation. We struggle with how God is running his world. He seems distant, passive, disinterested and complacent toward evil. Amos 3.6 says, Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? And we have to ask, are we okay with that? Are we okay with Him commissioning these living creatures to say, Come, and what comes is conquest and bloodshed and famine and death? And the answer to that question, are we okay with disaster coming to a city that the Lord has designed, will reveal whether God is Lord and King of our life or whether we have shown up to give Jesus a casual handshake this morning. Because he's the King of kings. He's the Lord of lords. In Proverbs 3.5 says this, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. And here's some of our problem, is that we are actually leaning on what we think we know when we are finite. 
We have a very limited perspective of God's entire plan, but we lean on and it becomes a crutch and a dependence on our own understanding. And the scriptures say, don't do that. Trust in him with all your heart. Probably one of my favorite books since 2013 is Habakkuk, where the prophet reverently and carefully argues with God. Listen to what he says. Oh, Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save. Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? This is a human prophet talking to God. Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. Do you ever feel that way? For the wicked surround the righteous so justice goes forth perverted. That's his complaint against deity. But only two chapters later, Habakkuk submits to God's reign because he knows that God is using the Chaldeans as a tool to march down onto Judah and bring his people back to him. But it's a very vicious tool that he's using, and we don't fully understand that. But then Habakkuk says, oh, Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work. Oh, Lord, do I fear in the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. Then listen to what he says. These are the last couple of verses of this small three-chapter book. Now, remember, he knows the Chaldeans are coming. He's talking about the physical response. He's actually shaking. A godly prophet Habakkuk is fearful at what God is designing. And he says, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls. What is he explaining? The Chaldeans are coming down to conquest. Right? White horse. The Chaldeans are coming down to shed their blood, not just to intimidate them. Red horse. The Chaldeans will come in and they will eat off the land so that there are no figs, there are no olives, there's no food, there's no flock. The stalls are empty. Famine. Listen to what he says. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. How? I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. How is that possible? Here's the concern I have. Some of us are still in chapter one of Habakkuk. And we've been arguing for years. And we've never followed the path of Habakkuk into chapter 3 where we're like, okay, I don't understand. I don't get it. But I'm going to stop leaning on my own understanding and I'm going to trust in you with all my heart. And folks, that will lead. When you honor him as king and savior, that leads to salvation. How do you do that? This is the first place in the scriptures this phrase is mentioned. Most of you know that it's mentioned in Galatians and Romans, but it's in Habakkuk where he says this, the righteous shall live by his faith. And so when we live in this wicked world where these horses are galloping across humanity, we walk by faith and not by sight. And then secondly, he has overcome death by death and resurrection. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. 
and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages, that's faith. He might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. You need not fear if you are in Christ, you need not fear that final pale horse. And its rider is death. And what follows in its path is the grave. You need not fear that because you are already set in the heavenly places with Christ by grace. And then third, we have work to do. So it's not just that we live by faith and hunker down and hide. Listen to what Jesus says in in a somewhat parallel passage on, on, on the Olivet Discourse. He says, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. True faith in Christ as the object alone is persevering faith. Verse 14, Jesus says, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. We have a work to do to proclaim the gospel throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And as we are busy serving the Lord faithfully, enduring by faith, then the end will come. Let's pray.